Hey everybody, we are Robert, Martin, and Francis, and this is Snakes and Otters, pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Welcome back to Snakes and Otters. This is episode 54. Uh, we're doing Lee's masterpiece, The Battle of Chancellorsville. I'm Martin. And I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. All right, guys, before we dig in, Martin has got something very special for us, I think. Thank you, Robert. We have another listener email. This is very exciting. So Evan from Louisville writes, Robert, Martin, and Francis, thank you for the amazing podcast. I've been waiting for you all to join Apple Podcast. So just sad note, yes, we're on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, all the platforms. Uh, this quarantine has given me time to listen to older podcasts and has given me a little light in this dark time every Friday when I can listen to a new episode. I am currently on the Thomas Aquinas episode. My hands-down favorite episodes have been Van Gogh, Robert Captain mm. that one, and the 1972 election. So that was, that was one of our, our arguments there, I think. As a millennial, I've really enjoyed your take on the topics chosen. I've even started to try different bourbons and looking forward to trying more. I'm about to try an Elijah Craig small batch, thanks to you guys. Thank you all again for the work you do, and keep it up. Evan, that's some of the nicest things anybody's ever said to me, and I've been married for 26 years. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was very that nice. Is, that, is, that is very nice. That's very, very nice. Yeah, that, that's, uh, yeah great. I, that's great to know somebody's getting... Who, uh, who'd have thought uh, that that's what he would... Because he's listened to several, quite a few of them, and those are the ones he picked. Interesting. I, I liked both of those episodes, but you know, I liked a lot of other episodes, too. Uh, the 72 uh, election episode was fun. It really was fun. Yeah, that uh, was our uh, figuring out why George McGovern was such a bad candidate episode. It was. So, well, and you know, Aquinas, that was probably one of our um, uh, best deep episodes that we've done. We got really, I, I, I still think that's one of our best uh, philosophical episodes. So he picked two good ones. Oh, yeah, but you can't so, not be. <laughs> you can't not be with Aquinas. Well, that's true, yeah. I mean, it's Aquinas. I mean, come on. Yeah. So... so. so we are back to, uh, before we get back to uh, uh, Battle of Chancellorsville, I uh, just want to bring everybody up to speed on where we are. So, you know, we are still in lockdown, so we are recording this uh, via the Internet using technology uh, uh, that everybody else is using, doing some online meeting software that's uh, <laughs> recording it. And, uh, you know, so we're you probably hear a little bit of uh, different quality in our, in our voices, and uh, we may talk over each other a little bit more than we used to, uh, simply because it's a little bit harder to, to keep on top of that when we are not face-to-face. -face. So uh, we apologize for any technical glitches that you guys may have to uh, put up with. But Battle of Chancellorsville, so we're back in history. This is the first week of the, uh, the month. And last month, we did Fredericksburg. And basically that turned into a... Man, Burnside was a bad general uh, all the way around. And this month we're doing Chancellorsville, which is pretty much the next major battle. And this is literally not just us calling it. This is historians call this battle Lee's masterpiece. And it really is just an incredible uh, tactical masterpiece because on paper... This should have been the end of the war. This should have destroyed Lee's army. Hooker should have had an open road to Richmond. And Hooker somehow just didn't manage to do it. And we're going to talk about that. I think we're going to talk about uh, 
some of the ramifications of Fredericksburg going into this and then coming out of this battle leading into Gettysburg because there's some major stuff that happens in this battle, most notably, of course, the loss of Jackson uh, to, uh, to, the Army of the, or to the Army of Northern Virginia. So <clears throat> that's a quick setup. Anything you guys want to add to the setup there before we uh, move on? Well, I think it's important to uh, set up a little bit the transition from Burnside to Joe Hooker. Yep, was going to go there, yep. And talk a little bit about fighting Joe. He didn't like that name. He that did not. Made him sound like a highwayman or a bandit. But uh, in reading up about Hooker and his background, I was uh, you start to see these trends of uh, <laughs> these generals. Much like uh, Grant and Burnside and Sherman, he resigned his commission. He's a West Point guy, kind of a middling student at West Point. But uh, he was one of these guys that kind of looked the part. He looked good in a uniform, blonde hair. Um, but he resigned his commission in the 1850s, was in California trying to make it rich, just like Sherman. Uh, but just like all those other guys, uh, at the start of the war, he was basically dead broke. Uh, he had to get uh, somebody to give him some money just to get east uh, to try to get uh, a commission uh, in the army again. Um, but he uh, wasn't well thought of with Burnside. Uh, Burnside wanted to hang him. Sorry, <laughs> um, yeah. right. Burnside took the job to keep Hooker from getting the job. If I remember correctly. Yeah, that's right. And then when, when things went bad at Fredericksburg, um, you know, Hooker just couldn't believe the orders that Burnside was giving out and threatened to, to basically mutiny or insubordination. And, and Burnside threatened to hack him. Um, of course, none of that came to anything. And Burnside got swept, swept aside. And Hooker was given eventual command of the army. And... And very famously, you know, Lincoln uh, wrote him a letter um, and says, uh, I have heard in such a way as to believe it of you recently saying that both the army and the government needed a dictator. Of course, it was not for this, but in spite of it, that I have given you the command. <laughs> Only those generals who gain success can set up dictators. What I ask now of you is military success, and I will risk the dictatorship. That's yeah. a that's, that's a great pretty, uh, pretty great quote by Lincoln or from Lincoln because it shows how desperate he was to get somebody who could fight. And when you think about this, you know, we are at this point we're in the spring of 1863. This this, this battle takes place uh, early May, uh, the first few days of May. So we are two full years into the war, a war that on paper should have been won in the first year. And yet here we are still struggling through it. And Lincoln is desperate for a win, a big win, not just because he needs it politically, just because he's got to do something or else the war is going to be lost. This year really is the pivotal year. Uh, if they had kept having more Burnsides and Hookers, as far as those who were, uh, the, the results those guys are giving us, we'd be two separate nations today. Uh, but luckily that did not happen. So, um, yeah, Hooker gets the job, 
primarily because, like, well, hell, I don't know who else to give it to at this point. Because, uh, you know, he's, he's run through all the senior guys, and he's, he's now kind of getting into the... Uh, although Hooker, uh, he was not an unknown at this point. It's not like he was one of the... He was plucked out of nowhere, but... Um, yeah, he distinguished himself well at Antietam and other places. Right. So, you know, it's not like he, was, he didn't have a, a, a resume, so to speak, going into this, but still, as many generals as, as Lincoln has been through, it's, it, you have that feeling. I was like, well, hell, we'll try him because it can't, ha- can't be any worse than what we've already done. And yet, with this battle, you could make the argument that, well, yeah, it's just as bad as everybody else, maybe even a little bit worse, just because at the end of the battle, this was the most bloody battle to date in the war. That's how bad it was. Uh, you know, granted, this is both sides, not just uh, Union or, or Confederate. And Hooker had brilliantly set it up. He had marched into Lee's rear. He was some nine to ten miles behind Lee's lines. And he thought Lee didn't know what was going on. He actually even said, I hope God has mercy on General Lee, for I will have none. Uh, that's how confident he was, which you want a general that has confidence, granted. And, uh, and uh, he really did maneuver uh, the army up to the, up to the battle very well, very uh, brilliantly. Uh, yeah, bordering on brilliantly, because he crossed the Rappahannock uh, both above and below Lee's position um, without real opposition. Right. And And the idea was to a classic pincer movement and, and crush Lee between two forces. Right, because, it's, you know, as usual, Lee is outnumbered about two to one. And what makes it worse is that uh, Longstreet, in his first corps, is not even at this battle. They are off foraging for food because, you know, Lee's army is perpetually on the brink of starvation. So that's 15,000 of his best fighters uh, off foraging for food. Yeah, Lee and is actually is criticized. Not, you know, obviously, for that. one of his top generals. Yeah, so because he's, he's he's too far away. He can't get back. Yeah, he can't get back in time. Uh, so it's not out. like he's 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 not available at all. And so that makes what happens in this battle even more amazing, because Lee's success, especially up to this point, has been predicated of uh, on Jackson hammering the Union against uh, Longstreet's immovable rock. You know. Uh, and that is that is something that is just not available. But Jackson excels in what he does best, maneuvering and being bold, and that's that's what Lee does. He uses that to his advantage. Uh, you know, he finds out that the the Federals have have moved to the crossroads at Chancellorsville, and in the face of that, any Union general would have retired towards Richmond had their positions been reversed. That's not what Lee does. He decides to split up his army in defiance of all common wisdom. You do not split your army in the face of uh, a foe that has numerical superiority, especially one that is this large. So he does that, and he sends Stonewall on a ride around Hooker's army to attack Hooker's flank. And he does this at night, so you know this is all going on. The attack happens in the evening. The uh, the army is sitting down to dinner. They're hitting the flank by thirty thousand screaming rebels, and they're just routed. And 
you know, inexplicably, Hooker just basically, all he does is fall back from that point on. He's already given up the high ground. Uh, Porter Alexander moves his artillery into that uh, open field that looks down upon the Union positions and just barrages the hell out of them. One of the first true artillery barrages in this war. Uh, and com- you know, it concentrated uh, the, the way that he did it. And it's just, it's masterful all the way around. And so it's one of those things. Is Lee that good or is Hooker that bad? You know, I think there's a little bit of both there. Lee's really that good in this battle. There's uh, a little bit of luck involved here, too. Uh, yes, there's a great deal of luck uh, oh, involved. I know, I know I was pretty harsh on Burnside. We all were last time. I'm less inclined to be so on Joe Hooker. Uh, he he had all the advantages going in. He should have absolutely this been a textbook case. He did everything right, except he was against Robert E. Lee. There's been a, some talk though. Hooker was actually wounded, sort of. A shell exploded uh, against a, a, a. He was on a porch and it exploded on the pole. He was up against. And he got a concussion. They believe now. They he refused treatment and refused to be relieved. And most of his decisions after that, historians have questioned whether or not he was in a real position because his timidity, which he's often uh, criticized for, many respects begins there. This is when he starts to pull back. This is when he loses connections uh, between parts of his army because he's so concentrated, this shouldn't be tough. But it's complicated, as yeah. we all know. He's not, he's, right, he's not quite that. He still retains a good portion of his army and but his he, control. He, even before the 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 incident where, he, and again, you're right, he, he's knocked senseless for a bit. Uh, he ends up just lying in the floor of the Chancellor House uh, under a blanket for a while. But uh, again, doctors don't press him to, to turn over command to a subordinate and there's just kind of no... Well, he refused, no, too, because yeah. he had he, his chief he staff and a couple other guys yeah. were there. But nobody high yeah. enough for him to say, "I'll do it." Yeah, but he'd already uh, he'd already begun making some of these kind of questionable calls. He'd already begun pulling out and pulling back into the wilderness. That's really the hard part of this: is once you start pulling away from the positions he had established, you're pulling yourself back into the wilderness. And the wilderness. It's called the wilderness for a reason. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it had been. A, a regular forest that had been, I think, strip mined, basically. Yep. Pretty much deforested, and new growth was was replanted, but it's got tons and tons of underbrush as a result of that. Yeah, it's so uh, because it's, the trees are tall. It's horrible maneuvering ground. It's right. horrible and, maneuvering it. You know, it's later on, Grant would come to misery in the wilderness as well. Yeah. Uh, the same this, location, essentially. Yeah, yeah the same area uh, fought over and over and over uh, on top of. And it's just not a place you pull back into. You want out of the wilderness. If you're going to maneuver uh, 70,000, 80,000 men, you want out of the wilderness. Right, and that was his intention. That was the intention from the beginning was from his positions in the wilderness to move out into the open area where he could employ his numerical superiority. And And, once things started to go wrong, he lost that initiative. He also had some pretty weak sub-commanders among him. Oliver Howard... Uh, although he was personally brave, deserves a whole lot of uh, whole lot of blame here because he's the one that Jackson swings around behind and takes from behind. And Howard has intelligence, 
up to this point that the Confederates are massing here, and he dismisses it. Uh, he was considered to be, uh, in many respects, somebody that his men didn't care much for him. They thought he, he was a political general. They didn't think he knew what he was doing, and in many respects he didn't. And they're sitting down to dinner with no pickets, no guard, no formations, no loaded weapons, whatever, when Jackson rolls through. Well, there's no question that that's going to not only just break the line, it's going to destroy the line. And mm -hmm. this this whole, uh, in mere respect, two forces meet on the battlefield until one of their wills breaks. Howard's will broke in, in, like glass, first See, hit, with one hit. I don't know that Howard deserves that much of the 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 the, the blame on this. I mean, certainly not like a a, a Burnside does uh, for doing the same thing over and over against the worst possible ground at, at uh, Fredericksburg, yeah. because he was on the extreme right. He was as far he's supposed to be as far away from the Confederates as was humanly possible. So, you know, without have, being able to see it directly, and uh, you know, yeah, he was getting if he was getting reports that there was something going on, I can certainly see why he would have a hard time believing it. Mm -hmm. But once it started, there was nothing he could do. That's correct. Once it, once they broke it, it shattered. Well, once the attack began, it was the the, the attack. It was broke as soon as it began, because oh, there good. were no fortifications. That's right. Uh, there, there, which there was, there was nothing. Uh, well, because you know, Hooker had intended to stay offensive. He didn't really. He ends up with this hybrid of a defensive offensive type thing. It's like he's he's schizophrenic. He can't really decide which way he wants to go. Uh, and although he had good, one of the things we have to remember here is Hooker has, for the first time, he now back up. He's reorganized the army after Burnside's disastrous mm -hmm. reorg before with grand That's divisions right. and stuff like that. The men hated it. It was very confusing. Hooker goes back to a more traditional structure, and the men loved Hooker because he re he reforms all sorts of stuff when he takes over, uh, it, from down to the cooks to all sorts of th different things. So. He's got guys that are willing to fight for him at this point. Uh, he yeah. has the will of these folks, and he's very well organized, but he has something nobody else has had before him, military intelligence. He's the first general to real, other than the cavalry, which, of course, Lee depended on Stuart for that, and he had excellent I intelligence via that. But Hooker has all sorts of other types of intelligence that's going on. He's the first general to really utilize this, so... Information he kind of knows. You know, we can we can talk about how Burnside was inept because he didn't know what he was facing at Fredericksburg. Hooker's not that. He's got a completely different approach. He understands where Lee's army is. That's why he's maneuvered where he's maneuvered. And yet, still, he manages to snatch snatch defeat from the jaws of victory somehow. I've been waiting yeah, to use that. That's, uh, yeah, that's a very good point, Francis. You're absolutely right. Complete reform. Uh, down to division insignias and things like that the men loved, uh, made the cavalry a unified force. Oh, yeah, under Slocum. Scattered yeah. units. Yeah, he had, a, had a, his own commander. The men, the men believed in it. You're absolutely they wanted. They, want, they thought they had Lee by the tail here. They were well, up it, for but it. But they, they did. <laughs> That's the thing. They really <laughs> they did. They were up for it. Uh, they, they, Lee was where they expected him to be. They, they, it wasn't something that he, Lee was able to fool them like he'd been before. He's somewhere else. He, he was exactly where they expected him to be. What they didn't expect is for him to do something, Robert, as you said, completely against military convention. Who would expect you to take off a part of your force and then divide the remaining force in two pieces and attack right. in both directions? Uh, because you, you've got, you know, they're coming at you from three directions. You're going to go at them from three directions. Uh, only because you've got somebody 
and we'll segue into this pretty well, yeah. that's as bold and as capable as Stonewall Jackson is. And the men under him. I don't want to say it's all him because he's right. got guys that really, uh, whereas the Union officer corps commanders are weak at this point, not all of them. There's some really good ones here that will distinguish themselves later, but there are some weak ones. Whereas that does, that's not the case mostly with Lee's army, although we could probably, and we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, McClaws deserves a bit of a smack because he almost loses everything uh, late in the battle back at Fredericksburg, trying to hold back uh, Slocum's huge numbers that is supposed to be the reserves coming to Hooker's Sa salvation, you know, he's supposed to be that other part of the pincer, and McCloss just kind of sits there and lets Early and a few other folks take all the heat. Again, getting ahead of ourselves. So, so I think we've laid out, uh, you know, without going into the heavy details of the battle, you know, the, uh, the, I think we've done a good job of laying out, you know, who Hooker, Hooker was, um, what he's playing, and what Lee—we uh, all know who Lee is. You know, he's—he's he's just probably one of the most brilliant military minds this country has ever produced. And I do say that this country, because he came from the United Absolutely. States. He—that's correct. Know, he was trained at West Point. He was brilliant, and he was second only to Sidney Albert Johnson, uh, according to uh, the men of the time. Johnson wouldn't take command of the Union Army, and neither would Lee. And, of course, Johnson was uh, killed at Shiloh, which we should probably discuss at some time as well. But, um, you know, Lee certainly proved himself to be, to be worthy uh, of command of an army. And I think one of the interesting things, the differences between the, the North and the South and how they prosecuted the war and their, their manpower, you know, yes, Lee was outnumbered two to one almost all the time, sometimes more than that. Uh, but the organization of the armies were radically different. Lee had two corps going into this. He later had three after this because he had to split it up. He couldn't divide Jackson. Uh, he didn't have one person to step into Jackson's shoes. He had to come up with two. Whereas the Federals had dozens of corps, much smaller corps, so you had a lot more generals who had a say in things that went on. And I think oh, this is key good. to yes. how the war was prosecuted and how... And partially that's because they didn't know who could step forward. Uh, you know, the South, whether by luck or skill, from having just a few top-level commanders, they, had the, they, they very quickly came up with the right guys in the right place because they didn't have, you know, 60 guys that they could go through to choose. They only had a handful. And their guys were, for the most part, uh, in professional positions, you know, they weren't off trying to make money on the railroads. You know, they weren't uh, losing money in dry goods stores and things like that. Uh, they were readily available in the South at the beginning of the war, and you know, maybe that has something to do with it. But I think the organization of the two armies really does factor into how badly they got their butts kicked time after time. There's too many cooks, too many chefs in the kitchen, not enough guys you know, cutting up the vegetables and the meat and, and, and serving the food, so to speak, to, uh, to mix our metaphors here. Uh, and I think that has a, has a lot to do with it. Oh, you're absolutely right. And uh, well, this is one of the things we talked about a little bit with Burnside's. The Union Army up to this point, and we see that here, has a tendency to bring together the Corps commanders uh, during the battle, on the eve of battle or whatever, and they take votes 
on what should be done. Yeah. That happens here. Uh, when Hooker wants to leave, wants to retreat, uh, he brings in his corps commanders. They outnumber his vote significantly of wanting to stay and fight. He overrules them, and they retreat, yeah. uh, which is absolutely outrageous. You see, Lee never, doesn't work that way. He's got two guys he trusts. They trust him. In this case, Longstreet's not even there. So Lee, in this, you know, the famous painting that's been done, it's the last time that these two men met because of Jackson's death. They have a powwow with just two of them beforehand, and, and they know what to do. It's very easy. You don't have to worry about lots. You know, too many cooks spoil the souffle, I believe has been said. Uh, uh, and, I'll, and I'll steal from Margaret Thatcher, consensus is the absence of leadership. That's yeah. something that really, uh, that was a fatal flaw in the officer corps mentality in the Union. It was something that Grant would correct, as we've talked about, is right. he'll consult, but he's not voting. Well, and, and we're pretty much going to recognizes this. That's you know, right. That quote that Martin uh, uh, used, you know, I'll risk the dictatorship if you'll win me the battle. That's right. Because that's what he wanted. He wanted somebody who would be bold, who could take charge and actually do something. Well, sure. Well, and he thought yeah. he had it. And he really, he, maybe if, if Hooker hadn't been hurt, you know, maybe, maybe. things would have turned out differently. Although uh, with that, it, it, you know, Jackson's bold move, I don't know if this battle went any other way after that, but... You know, yeah, that was actually later right. in, the, in, the, in the battle. You know, this is over three days, just like uh, Gettysburg. And so there were multiple points where the Union still could have won prior to that, because Jackson's charge uh, is the late on the second day of the battle, on May right. 2nd, yeah. I believe. So yeah. there were still plenty of opportunities for him to have won this prior to that. Well, yeah, the especially when he's ground. got Slocum's whole group uh, in Fredericksburg, he's calling in, trying to use this pincer movement, and you know they may do a very good job with Early uh, and McClaws and several others there to holding him back, uh, preventing them from joining with them until it's too late. And by this time, Hooker says, "Okay, I'm out of here." Uh, there, his men didn't want to leave. They thought this was still winnable. Maybe they're right. I don't know. Uh, the weather was still with them. Uh, it's one of those questions about history at this point. Uh, the moral will had gone. It really had. Uh, well, and, and certainly, you know, the loss of Jackson uh, has a great deal to do with how the, the battle ends. Uh, oh, yeah. Kind of not quite abruptly, but uh, probably not at, to the satisfaction of either commander. But before we go on, I'd like to point out that uh, tonight I am drinking some of my double-oaked Woodford Reserve, my absolute all-time favorite uh, of bourbon that I can afford. Because uh, I cannot <laughs> afford the pappies nearly as often as I would like, which is Understood. never. But uh, this is the good old double yeah. oaked. Yes, I wanted to, to pause before I made my next point and mention that uh, I've got a good sip of larceny here. And Francis, what have you got? Uh, I am finishing my Basil Hayden tonight. Uh, I'm one to. Uh, I'm not going to crack my next one. Uh, I've got. I've got a. Beautiful bottle of Woodford, regular Woodford, waiting for me next time around. But I wanted to finish the basil here. This uh, you're drinking out of a fruit jar, aren't you, Martin? <laughs> mason jar. Well, mason jar. Mason jar. I didn't. Uh, I didn't get a regular bourbon glass uh, out. I just. Uh, you know, it's kind of cool. It's it's mason nice. jar from, from water. I just had a big glass of water with my dinner, so yeah. it's very southern. Just, and you know, we might as well raise yeah. a, a glass to Stonewall Jackson because yeah. you know so he was he was one of the best. Mercy. So, uh, but, uh, can I interrupt for a moment, Robert? Sure, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, 
I think part of this too, when we when we talk about the union leadership and the differences between them and the Confederate leadership, you know, they've got different jobs. True. And, and Lee and the Confederate generals recognized this immediately. They didn't have a job where they needed to, you know, invade and conquer the North. Their job is just to make the war painful enough that a political solution comes along. True. The Union job is much more difficult, and it takes, again, I think it takes all the way to Grant before they realize this, that the job is not just drive Lee off or get to Richmond. The job is to break the will of the South. Oh, and, you're absolutely right. They don't I, get that I, yet. I think that, since, that none of them really grasp this, and I think that contributes to this serious failure of leadership, really all the way through Ambrose, Burnside, Joe Hooker, all of these subordinate commanders, they just really didn't get that until Grant comes east. You know, I don't yeah. think Lincoln got it either. And, no, and I think Lincoln did. I think Lincoln did mm -hmm. because so. he was looking for uh, – now, granted, I think that in the end it almost had to be a long, drawn-out war, but he was looking for that defeat of the military because if you could defeat the Army of Northern Virginia – Think about what it would have done to morale of the southern states mm -hmm. if your, if your uh, capital is occupied, if Virginia. Virginia was the preeminent state in the entire country up until the Civil War. So it, it holds a huge, uh, a huge place in the minds and hearts of everybody, especially in the south. Otherwise, why did they even move the capital to Richmond? It was better off in Alabama and Montgomery. Because it was, you don't, it's 90 miles from Washington, D.C. You don't place your capital 90 miles away from the, your, your foe's capital. That's just ridiculous. Yeah, so, if you have a choice, you don't do that. Right, and they had a choice, but they did it anyways. So Virginia and Richmond are extremely important. If they could take Richmond, I think this really does deal a, a psychological blow to the South. Because that's where the bulk of, uh, at least early on, uh, the bulk of uh, the military is focused. Now, as the war grow goes on, you know, more departments, more um, satellite armies are raised in place throughout the South. But if you could take Virginia and South Carolina, because that's the hotbed of rebellion. That's where everything right. starts all the time. Uh, that's where the, you know a lot of the uh, rebellion with the, uh, the Revolutionary War started. That's where it starts here. But if you could knock out one of those two, and if you knock out the first, you have a, stand a much better chance of knocking out the second, you will deal a major blow. Now, maybe that's not enough early on because the South is still large, but that's the thinking, I think. So I think, Lee, I think Lincoln does see that. And he sees what needs to be done. He just can't convince anybody else of it until, well, until yeah, maybe, maybe that comes east. That's it, because I don't think uh, – one of the things that you learn about high level of command, you want somebody – an A player demands autonomy. I want to do it my way. If, you've got, if I can't – if you're, you're – either I'm in command or you are, but it's not both of us. And Lincoln recognizes this. He has to have a commander who is in command. None of his commanders up to this point understood – Lincoln's strategy. 
on this, apparently. Oh, I think well, they, they, they did it in a tactical manner because they know, let's take Richmond, let's take Richmond, let's take Richmond, but, which was what, you know, for, uh, which what Burnside was trying to do, which is what Hooker was trying to do, Pope well, before Holland him, too. Was trying to do it. Exactly, a peninsula campaign. So they're trying to do that, but that's not really what we're after. We're really after destroying Lee. But we don't well, know that yet. If you don't Some destroy of us do. Lee, you can't get to Richmond anyway. Exactly. It's, it's a fate you know, of McClellan, Sorry. I think, oddly enough, McClellan came closest to understanding what Lincoln wanted. It's just that he couldn't execute because he always thought he was outnumbered two to one. He, he outnumbered them two to one. Right. It was an order. It was, you know, four times difference. You know, and if he had realized how much of an advantage he had, the war might have been over in that first year. Well, if he brought it all to bear, Hooker tried because he had a two-to-one advantage here he and knew it. And, 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 he knew and, he, it. and he didn't pull back. He really did try. Uh, and like we've said, on paper, it should have been perfect. Well, but if it was against Hooker, Robert E. Lee. If you'd had Hooker in charge of the Peninsula campaign instead of McClellan, maybe that turns out differently. That's a very good idea, yes. Until Seven Pines, I think it's Seven Pines, Lee's not in charge of the full Army of the Nor Northern Virginia. He's an advisor in Richmond. He's thrown That's in... true. He takes command later. The, so what, what do you have to say there, Martin? Uh, Mar I, I think you maybe are on to something, because we, we're exploring this question a little bit of, well, what really happened to Joe Hooker? Was it this concussion, or why exactly did he suddenly go from fighting Joe to timid Joe, uh, and even starting to pull, pull his people back into the wilderness even before he was injured. And I think you're on to something in that it's, there's a timeline here that's important. Early on in the war, I think you're right, Hooker would have behaved differently. But he was at Fredericksburg. And following on to Fredericksburg and seeing the mess there, I think... That got to him, and, and it was easy to talk tough and talk brave before Lee shows up. But once he got there, I think Hooker feared destroying the army uh, to the scale that Burnside almost did. I think he was deathly afraid uh, of that mass death that just the hillsides filled with blue uniforms on the ground. Well... And That's ironically, good point. Yeah. he ended up with a greater death toll than, than Burnside did in doing that. Uh, now, granted, was, that's not all, again, it's not all his fault because you've got to factor spread in. spread out over a lot of different – there's a lot of theaters going on with, in yes. Chancellorsville, and it's, it's concentrated uh, it, in Fredericksburg, it so it's not a fair um, comparison. But it's exactly right. But Fighting Joe really did fight. I mean, these guys were really uh, – they were in, heavily engaged. They, they reacted fairly quickly. Uh, during most of this problem, the problem is they they were just whooped. They were the, uh, Lee outgeneraled them. He was where they weren't expecting him to be yeah. in full force, and with you're the right, right guy in, in with charge. the right guys there. Uh, and uh, maybe it's because these. Uh, I still think the corps commanders under Hooker deserve a lot of blame. Uh, Howard's just kind of my whipping boy on that, but there are others that didn't perform as well as they could. Now, that's not to say they weren't. John Fulton Reynolds is one of the greatest generals that ever that ever wore the blue uniform, and he distinguishes himself very, very well here. But yeah. he's he's on the first corps. Uh, Howard is on the eleventh corps, which has already been beaten up bad, 
and it, morale is low. It's just everything that could be wrong with that spot. Jackson picked the perfect spot to go because that was just the absolute weakest link in the whole thing. Yeah. And they didn't. They they knew it because that's why they had him out there where nobody could bother him. And darned if that's not where they went. Yeah. And I know you guys also you want to talk about Jackson because we talked about pathos with Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. And there's pathos here too. Rather than, than on thousands of men dying beneath Marie's Heights, it's just the pathos of this one man. Right. Um, this very complex, uh, some a tyrant, some say a genius. Um, some say a little crazy. A little crazy. And uh, they're probably he was all definitely, correct. Yeah, definitely an oddball man. Um, Lieutenant General Thomas Stonewall Jackson, uh, absolutely fearless in battle. Um, and and wanted to whoop Yankees every minute of every day. He had a lot in common with uh, Admiral Horatio Nelson uh, in the Napoleonic Wars. Never mind the maneuvers, just go straight at him. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he was very bold, but not reckless. Uh, he, yeah, he was. He, he was not a charge him head on, but he was because obviously he does not do that here. Uh, but he was not afraid to fight. Uh, none of Lee's top generals, uh, uh, well, I say none, but really there's only two, Longstreet and and Jackson, were afraid to fight. Uh, They they had different styles, uh, but, you know, they were perfectly complimentary, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's one of the things that uh, any two, any other two generals under Lee would have been a disaster for the Confederacy. And when it starts to go wrong is when he loses both men. Mm-hmm. When he loses Jackson, that's why. Honestly, I think there's a lot too. That's one of the reasons why he lost Gettysburg, which we're going to cover that next. Which month. we will cover next time, that's, yeah. and we're going to really because Gettysburg is so massive. How in the world can yeah. we possibly do it justice? So we're going to try and focus in on that one thing: what would happen if Jackson were there and the army was not reorganized as it was? And exactly. what if it? We haven't done that in a while, and those are always some fun well, episodes. And, you know, Get- Gettysburg is one of our near and dear subjects because that is one of the best what if battles mm-hmm. so yeah. many moments There's so many turning points yeah yeah but, but you're right that the tragedy the pathos here is really it's something every every school child has heard the story at least in some fashion it still comes down to us even today that jackson was killed by his own men by accident he is shot while he's you know he is reconnoitering a place he should not have been his men told him don't go out there uh, because it's at night and you're this is a, you're taking a dangerous thing, but Jackson had no fear of this, and he ends up exactly what they said would happen. He's accidentally shot by his own men, shot in the arm three times. He ends up losing the arm the next day, which he actually shot was, in the hand, yeah. and then in the arm that he loses uh-huh. twice. So right from extreme range too. This is the part that is is you know one of those oh my god this is just you know a, br- a, a just a, a semi stiff breeze blowing through it at, at the right moment would have altered the shots enough because they were at such extreme range. Yeah, because these are the four muskets. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're notoriously inaccurate. And the fact that they managed to hit anybody in that, that grouping of officers on the, uh, on the way back in through the lines is just phenomenal. Phenomenal bad luck for the, for the South, but phenomenal good luck for the North. 
Oh, yeah. And uh, he becomes the central figure in the Lost Cause myth. He does. Because of because the, the manner in which he dies. Mm-hmm. He, he did the smart thing. He died in, on the battlefield instead of, like, Longstreet surviving. Yeah. And becoming had, a Republican. <laughs> and, and became a Republican, yes. If Longstreet had died at the wilderness when he was injured... Um, Actually, it might have been the Battle of the Wilderness later on. It was on, Wilderness, yeah. Uh-huh. It was Wilderness, yeah. But if he had died of his wounds there, like Jackson had done the year before, then he would be just as deified as Jackson. Yeah. yeah. And they would see them... Uh, and many of those generals uh, were... You would see uh, paintings uh, uh, all over the South for 100 years after that of these sainted generals, Jackson preeminently, but many of the other... Lee and many of the others as well, as like the, the lost cause myth became a very... It's the only way people could deal with defeat, psychologically mm-hmm. speaking. Yeah. And, but then Jackson's story is one that lends itself so perfectly to this because he, you know, he's the wounded warrior who dies in his bed the next day of pneumonia. Eight days. Eight days, that's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, it's just, it, he lingers long enough to leave some, you know, to leave some last words uh, for everybody to, to mourn him. You know, it would have been, it, as you say, he, he dies in battle, but, you know, he, he lingers around long enough for us to hear about it. Uh, they don't just well, find him. Find him. And this is the the thing that that makes you know. When we talk about civil war stuff, it is such a an odd thing because again, you know, we are the only country that puts up statues to the generals who who lost on, in in their own civil war. Uh, although, granted, you know, we are removing a lot of those from public places now. Um, you know, and granted, a lot of them went up as part of that lost cause effort uh, many years after the battle. Uh, it was part of a, a way to rehabilitate the South uh, for, for, from their own perspective. But and somewhat of a reconciliation, too. Yeah, and it was. It was. It turned out to be that way. Yeah, it wasn't intended that way, but it worked to that effect uh, that but it allowed a, them to save some face. There's a romanticism, you know, no matter the evil of the cause, and there is no doubt, splintering the Union and enforcing slavery was an evil cause. Absolutely. There's there's no way around that. Right. Yet we can recognize that for whatever, even though the cause they supported was absolutely 100% wrong, there's great tragedy that goes on. And Stonewall Jackson was was one of those men who was extremely complicated. Uh, he was, just like Lee was complicated. You know, he was one who. Uh, the military was all for him. Even though he was not in the military at the start of the war, he was the headmaster at the Virginia Military Institute. And, you know, one of the great stories that you hear from um, uh, Robertson's book uh, about Stonewall Jackson, which is one of the best biographies, uh, as I understand it, of Jackson, is how he would, uh, you know, he taught. He was a horrible teacher. Horrible. You know, if, if he taught on a subject and somebody raised his, uh, excuse me, I didn't understand that. Could you re- could you explain it better? He wouldn't explain it better. He would just repeat what he had already said verbatim. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and so he wasn't necessarily a good teacher, but he, he was dedicated to the things that he thought were important. And on the political side, I, you know, I don't think most of the generals, certainly at the high level, were all that interested in the politics of the war, as far as the you know, we have to maintain slavery and the status quo so much as like Lee, he was defend he could not fight against other Virginians. And so 
there's that's what I think what makes all of this so complex and why there's so much yeah. interest in that. You yeah. know, I think uh, the they were, the they were fighting Burns, in many ways for their homes. Yeah, I think the Ken Burns uh, show made it famous to to describe Jackson as a pious blue-eyed killer. A blue-eyed what? Killer. Killer. Yes. Um, you know, he's a bit of a martinet, like you said. He kind of memorized what he needed to tell people, and that's all he knew of it uh, to a degree. But yeah, that. His men absolutely loved him. They loved. They would charge the gates of hell for him. I think he was, was not afraid to ask enormous things of them. He understood them well enough. That's something nobody else would do. Early. That's right. Very few yeah. men, and, and he believed in training enormous, enormously. Yeah. Wellington was the same way. He believed in train, 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 which pays enormous dividends down the road. Patton was the same way. That's yeah. how they were able to do a lot of these feats, is because these guys, they would, they could do all this. Uh, and they were, they didn't just have bombast. They mm-hmm. also had, they were razors, to yeah. use the term. And I think Francis, you were you were on your way to telling a story, and you got sidetracked. But I think you were going to tell that Lee famously says he has lost his left arm, but I have lost my right. That's well, you, you have nailed it exactly right. Yeah. And that's another one of those quotations that every schoolboy has heard, uh, every school child has heard throughout. Uh, uh, the story. You may not remember uh, anything about any battles, but you remember the people and how they died. Uh, that's why Stonewall Jackson gets remembered, and Robert E. Lee is, huh? Because he didn't die of his wounds, but we remember. Oh, oh yeah, I don't think did. Robert E. Lee is, huh? I think Lee is far more well known than, than Jackson. That's that's true, of course. Yeah, in, in many ways. Um, uh, I think uh, Longstreet you, is the, huh? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. Longstreet, up until the 20th century, because he became a Republican, because he saw that as a way to, to, rather than work against the system, he wanted to work in it for the Southern cause. And he was about the only famous guy who did. And, you know, up until the 20th century, uh, relatively modern times, he was evil. It was his fault that they lost the war. Yeah, he only recently got a statue at Gettysburg. It's a modern statue yes. uh, within the last 30 years. Uh, and that battlefield, which it was the first battlefield ever dedicated, it has statues everywhere. Uh, of Union statues are huge, uh, which we've been there. Uh, it's, uh, his is kind of tucked away somewhere. It was done on the cheap. It's nice. It's a beautiful statue. It is. You have uh, to kind of hunt to find it. That's correct. Yeah. It's, it's done very differently. And it's only uh, t- to try and correct the record, realizing, yeah, absolutely, he deserves a statue. Why doesn't he have one? And right. I mean, if you're going to put up statues to both sides, yes, he should have correct. one. Correct. Um, so, in many ways, the loss of Jackson should have propelled him to the forefront of uh, the, 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 the cause, so to speak. But he made political mistakes after the war. So... Losing, oh wow, so we are about 45, 46 minutes into this, so we probably ought to wrap up soon. So um, so we see that Hooker, he started out with every advantage he could possibly have. He had all the advantages and he recognized them. He had a bold plan, because anything you try, when you try to attack Lee, you have to have a bold plan. They at least and he did. That. He got into Lee's rear. Theoretically, he had the war won right there. But mm-hmm. Lee masterfully divides his army in the face of mm-hmm. all convention that says you don't do it and manages to rout the North. 
And by doing that, he sets the stage for uh, what will be our next military show, our next history show, which will be on Gettysburg. And he maintains this advantage all through May and June and into early July. And it nearly change, this battle here nearly changes the way the war goes. If it weren't for just some incredible accidents of fate in Gettysburg, the South very nearly won the war because of what happened here. Except oh, yeah. Jackson dying. Except Jackson died. That's correct. Is what keeps it from happening. In my opinion, is one of the main things that keeps mm-hmm. it from happening. Yeah. And we yeah, guys- Hooker can be blamed for at least a good deal of it just because he retreats. But I think, don't think you can blame him for preparation and strategy going into it. No. Yeah, he was, he was not inept. or uh, It wasn't a Peter Principle issue with him like we talked about with Burnside. He, Burnside was kind of incompetent for the level he had achieved, and he knew it. Hooker was not. He, he, by all rights, should have done this perfectly. He had the textbook laid out and didn't. One thing I've got to talk about, though, before we finish up here, the, the name Hooker. It is not <laughs> where the term... For prostitutes came from, even though it's been said to be that. Apparently, the term hooker for prostitutes was used as early as 1845 in newspapers. However, for whatever reason, Hooker's name has forever been connected with the series of prostitutes. Yeah. and the, it's, it's, a, it's an urban legend that his name gave rise to them. It didn't. However, he was a ladies' man. He was a smooth-talking son of a gun, and he had his cadre of women that he had so, for a long period of time. I often wondered about that, but I you know, didn't know the, the story. So enlighten me. How did his name come to be uh, associated with hookers as prostitutes? Well, because it already had the, the, the hooker, the word yes, hooker why, came why was from the associated with this. Well, because it was the same as what we were already calling them. It just, okay. from, this, from that point forward, it just happenstance that people say, oh, well, you must, it must be because hooker was fairly famous at this time. Yeah. And he had a group of women that followed him. So they said, oh, well, that's where the name came from. Well, no, it's an urban legend. It was, okay. uh, so, supposedly, it took place in New York. There's an area of New York where prostitutes frequented yeah. that, are, that is, called, uh, it is called a hooker area. It's, it's not the full term of it. And that's kind of where it started. And it was in you know, 20 years before this is where that term came up. And because his name was the same, it's just one of those coincidences of history that those two terms became linked, even though they should not have been. Well, there okay. were a ton of camp followers for the Army of the Potomac. That's oh, part I, of it, too. That's absolutely. Yeah, every army yeah. has them. Uh, it seems Fighting Joe was pretty attached to them in many respects. <laughs> yeah. So his, re- his personal reputation certainly did do nothing to dissuade uh, yeah. the, the connection. Unlike some, like, for example, Leonidas Polk, the, you know, the Episcopal bishop who fought for the, in the West for the South, you would never have heard a connection with that because of his personal piety. But bishop Fighting Polk. Joe apparently had no such morals. <laughs> so before we wrap this up, which we need to do, yeah. Uh, because we don't want to go to an hour like we've been going <laughs> during this lockdown. Uh, but the civil, the American Civil War is one of those wars that I think is so fascinating, partially because we're still still barely 140 years removed from it. You know, it, it's just it, it's still recent enough in American history that it has not been overshadowed by other major events in the country. And partially that's because you know, we are two oceans away from anybody who's going to fight with us. Mm-hmm. And so it has that special, you know, we don't have World War II battlefields in this country uh, to overshadow them. And we 
did you know, unlike the English who had many civil wars, we didn't have that ro- they didn't have that romanticized version of uh, the losers the way we do. And so the Civil War is so fascinating from that respect, but also so fascinating, I think, because of all of the, oh my gosh, this if this just one thing had gone slightly differently. What is it about this war besides that that is so fascinating? It's not just the lost cause, because in this day and age, lost cause is recognized as a myth. Uh, most right. people fly the Confederate fa- mm-hmm. flag, aren't most, don't fly it because they're racist and want to enslave black people. They see it as a southern pride thing, uh, rightly or wrongly. Uh, the, the meaning of the symbol for at least some people has changed, mm-hmm. not necessarily for all people. So what is it about this war that, that makes us come back to it, makes us revisit it? Well, you know, you, that, that is a very, very good... I think it's generational. I think it's because we are about four to five generations removed. That means it's outside of our current experience. And it's local. In other words, we had grandparents. It's the only one that we. It's either this or the revolution that we're going to think about because it's the only two that really happened here. War of 1812, outstanding, but who wants to talk about that? Uh, Except the Battle of New Orleans, there was nothing glorious about that war. Yeah. From the American perspective. And that's part of it. And I think because. I think it's our way of coming to terms with what happened. I really it it is. It's because we realized, and this kind of goes to this universal theme we've been talking about a lot. The reason that this war is fascinating to us is a that it was prosecuted at all, that we were willing to do this. But so much greatness was displayed on both sides, and we find that dichotomy fascinating. That you can have an obviously right cause and a wrong cause still produce greatness from from men doing and it's mostly men i don't mean to be sexist by that doing things of great doing great deeds that everybody knows about we don't see much of that and the reason world war 1 and world war 2 don't rise to that level is they were over there we remember them with great fondness but this was here and well, we and still rem- and we can visit these places here and for not so much reason, there even though you know, obviously you know the, the the cause for slavery we recognize as a as a great evil, um, you know certainly on par with the evil of of Adolf Hitler, for whatever reason you know, and maybe because for you know, maybe there is a little bit of racism involved in this that we are just now overcoming as a people, but you know, I, I don't know, but we are you know we don't recognize the greatness of Nazi generals. Or of Russian generals, uh, the way we, we do. Correct. Right. We we don't hear because they're us. Generals. That's right. I mean, if yeah, we study those, we should. Great general. Yeah. But yeah. not as a great man, yeah. like people recognize somebody like a Jackson or a Lee or a Longstreet, um, whether well, rightly or wrongly. I'm just saying that they do. Well, there's there's truth to that. We should really figure and out maybe a way. They're our own guys. Maybe that has more to do with anything else. I think no. that's probably it. Yeah, yeah because there were some really good, both German and, you know, military speaking, there were some really good German and Soviet generals. I mean, Zhukov is one of the, uh, one of the yeah. greatest generals that, yeah. ever fought, that ever fought anywhere. And if you want to go back to, to Napoleon, uh, uh, he was defeated uh, by, uh, by Kutzkov 
who was never defeated at all. He was a great, he, enormous Rome, Russian general, but he's Russian, so we don't know him. That's kind of a uh, disservice to us. We know Wellington very well because he's British and he speaks the same language. Uh, it's, you're right. There, it's, it's a little bit of a snobbery on our part. There's a little racism, actually, uh, on our part because we'll only talk about the ones that are like us. And not, uh, I don't know racism, if that's so much racism as just... A- ethnic ethnic bias is a better word, yeah. 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 Because, uh, the, the, you know, really we're talking about all Caucasians. Uh, so. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, I don't think I want to try and take a stab at, at such a weighty <laughs> question. Yeah, that's a hard one. Why are we, you know, so enamored of the Civil War? But I do want to hit on something, though, that we talked about a little bit pre-show, in that... I'm finding fascinating with these episodes, you know, we've got two of them here complete. We're advertising them as about the battles, but we're using the battles as a setup really to discuss the people. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, we're and again, we we've, we've talked about this when I talked we talked about history books and why it's fascinating. History is not dates and events. It's a record of human decision making. And when you talk something like Chancellorsville, that really that that definition of history really comes to the fore because it's all about those decisions. It's all about questioning Hooker and the decisions he's making, and admiring the decisions that Lee is making. Again, he's he's making the only decision he can. Uh, again, he's got this this defined singular objective of all I've got to do is make this politically painful and we'll win. So when you're faced with long odds, the only thing you can do is take chances, and he does. And and then examining all about Stonewall Jackson and this, this pathos of, uh, you know, he's a killer, he's pious, he's intriguing, he's all these things, and he dies in this, what's the right word, guys? Quixotic manner. It's not bad. Yeah, tragic uh, certainly. Know, yeah, tragic, uh, friendly fire, quick, you know, oddball circumstance. So I just find that part of it so meaningful and fascinating for me when we do these episodes, and and again we're advertising them as well. We're doing the battle of this or the battle of that, but really. Personalities. It's it's we're talking about these these figures of history that are so important um, and that people need to understand and know about. The history is a thread. Where we are now is a result of where we've been. Right. Yeah, we're uh, talking about the critical me, moments. You know, we are the sum of all the decisions we have made prior to today. Mm-hmm. Uh, which at first. Glenn, at first listen, that sounds like you're saying, well, you know, everything is fated to happen. It's like, no, no, that's, yep. that's not. That's exactly the opposite of what it means. Right, we have right. made choices, and we're responsible for the outcome of those choices. Uh, I love the way you put that about history being about the decision, human decision making that has gone into those events, because that is very true. You know, history means nothing without the why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the facts. It's like math. You know, you know, formulas are fine. Uh, and they certainly propel our knowledge of science and uh, of all kind of all sciences. But without understanding, you know, really the great stuff is the why. Why does this work? Why is pi so interesting? Besides the fact that pi 
is up here. And everything else, oh, wait, that's a different kind of pie. That's a different pie. Different that's pie. a different pie. You know, so, there's, there's special meaning that human decision-making gives these events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, that, to me, is what is most fascinating. Well, for every, if you want to be a Newtonian on this, for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. That is absolutely true here, but it's not predictable because it's a complex system. When you've got 80,000 of these actions taking place, attempting to be done cohesively, but never completely, then the outcome does come back to certain players doing certain things or not doing certain things. And it's yeah. all that, it's that what if that we love to play around with. You can't even talk about the what ifs if you don't understand what actually did happen. Right. And why. Right. And, why. Right. and all the what ifs hinge on a single human action. Every what if we've ever discussed on the show or talk about whether or not we should discuss it on the show mm-hmm. hinge on a single human decision. Uh, back to Martin's point about what history is, those human yeah. decisions. Yeah. And, you know, the what if with this one, if Jackson had lived, what if he had chosen a different route? What if there, the, the picket line had not been battling all day and were tired and nervous about what was going on? Because, you know, let's face it, they knew they were outnumbered two to one. They were nervous as hell that, they, that the North might have counterattacked. And if you're the picket line, that's a, that's a really dangerous spot to be in. Absolutely. Especially yeah. at night. So, yeah, there's. What if those guys were, better, you know, worse shots than they were? I, this is all fascinating stuff. And so, you know, we could go on and on <laughs> for hours and hours, and we have in the past. Indeed. But yeah, this is just one little snapshot of where we're of this discussion, and we're dragging this baby out over four episodes, mind you. Yeah. Uh, in many respects, they're all four going to be connected. They will, yes. So, any last words before we wrap this up and, and, and send these, these poor listeners who have stuck with us for now, what, an hour or so? Yeah. Uh, we need to give them a break and let them move on to the next thing. Uh, anything else you guys want to add? No. I just want to say, Francis, what's next? Excellent. Oh, yes, that's right. Uh, Next week we're going back to our code of honor episodes. You know those are always fun. We do a, we have a we don't pregame them as we always tell you. We come up with uh, um, Martin and I will come up with something, and Robert has this huge long list that he's got that he waits for us to kind of lay it out there, and then he smacks it as the hammer that he is, uh, and ties it all together. Uh, we're going to do it again next time. Uh, you'll find it very fascinating. Thanks for being with us here every week at Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Be sure to spread the word on your social media accounts. Follow us and retweet us. We are on Instagram and on Twitter at Snakes and Otters. Let your friends know that they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Just search Snakes and Otters Podcast to find us, and please remember to leave us your comments and reviews. It helps people find us. And you can always send us an email at snakesandotterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Catch us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel.